I've entitled this morning's message, uh, Four Real Truths from Hebrews 10, 26 through 39. And there's a reason for that, that the, the sternness in the voice of the writer as he writes, the pen of the writer, if you will, here in the passage before us, really is almost without parallel in the New Testament. The sternness with which he writes. Um, Few in the New Testament had such a a, a noticeable horror, really, of, of sin. And it's very possible that the writer who himself was a Hebrew, writing to the Hebrews, it is the epistle to the Hebrews, was recalling uh, God's original command to his people Israel, the Hebrews, that was recorded back in in Deuteronomy 17, 2 through 7, that in the context of that uh, chapter back in Deuteronomy, you know, God had called his people to come out and be separate in the world and that if there were those within the context of the, the community, the village, uh, the, the tribes of Israel, that chose to reject God's command to worship him and him alone. And you can read it in your own reading time if you like. It's uh, profound that God had given the command that those who reject the law of Moses on the testimony of two or three witnesses, were to be taken outside the camp and they were to be stoned to death. And it is possible that this writer has that stern and yet firm uh, view of, of God's desire for his people to be wholly his in view because they were told that they were to purge the evil from your midst. The writer also, no doubt, uh, had witnessed two distinct dangers to the body of Christ. Two distinct um, threats, if you will, to committed Christians and the church. The first of which the writer would have uh, witnessed would have been back Uh, at the onset of the beginning of the New Testament church recorded for us there in the book of Acts. Chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is poured out. The 120 come out of the upper room and uh, the church is born. And yet in that moment, there was such great persecution against the church, though there was great revival as well, that uh, many lives were in danger because of two things. The Roman government did not uh, welcome what we call the way in the New Testament, and the leaders of Judaism did not welcome this new found faith as well. It was a clear and viable danger to the church at that time, but fast forward. He's writing now, and we're into some 30, 35 years later, as the church has uh, the diaspora, the 
Jews had spread out. The church was growing. But there was a second danger that he was now a witness to. And that was the danger of evil living and rejecting the faith that they had begun with within the church. Anglican preacher named Dick Shepard back in the 1920s and 30s over in London recognized something that is echoed here by the writer to the Hebrews. He was coined as saying that the, uh, the greatest handicap to the church is the unsatisfactory lives of the professing Christians. And so with that as a, a backdrop, with those, those realities as a backdrop, the writer here in this passage in front of us outlines four real truths for his reader to grab onto and thereby for us to grab onto this morning as well. The first, of course, would be the threat of willful sin and the tragedy that that brings. I want to back you up to verse 26. If you'd follow with me, he writes and says, For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. So the writer here begins with, you know, putting forward his sense of of sin within the church, within the body of Christ. And those Hebrews who were now beginning to cast away their faith, and and he is uh, heartbroken by it. He is committed to warning them against it, and he now deals with sin in three ways. You see, he believed, and it's clear by the text, that the writer understood that the greater the knowledge, the greater the sin. And that If under the old covenant and under the law of Moses, sin was uh, had a a dangerous consequence, that now that the truth had been received, the consequence was doubly serious. And so he begins to define sin in the body of Christ in three ways. I bring you to verse twenty-eight. If you'll read with me. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. 
And then, of course, the verses we read, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. The first sin that he cites has to do with trampling underfoot Christ. And it should be noted that it's not here a a rebellion against a specific law, but rather it is the wounding of love. Someone once put it this way, that it is possible to stand against almost any physical attack, but what breaks the heart is when someone we love betrays us. There is an account of a man in Germany during the terror of the Second World War and Nazi occupation who was uh, arrested, tortured, and placed into a concentration camp. But he fought gallantly and emerged after years of being encamped came out upright and not broken. But it wasn't long after his release that by accident he found out who it was that had produced the documentation that got him arrested, and it was his own son. The account says that he couldn't bear that information and soon after died. We also know historically that when Caesar was about to be murdered, he faced his uh, assailants with great courage. But when he saw the hand of Brutus raised with the knife to kill him, he covered his head so that he couldn't see it. Once Christ had come, the awfulness of sin lay not in the breaking of his commands, but in trampling his love for you underfoot. Saying, To him in so many words, Lord, I don't care that you went through all of that for me. I'm just going to live my life the way I want. It breaks his heart. And the writer here is endeavoring to help his reader see that truth. The second way that he outlines sin has to do with the failure to see the sacred Things as being sacred. Notice there in the second part of verse 29, counting the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, a common thing. A common thing. In other words, the writer is endeavoring to reinforce to the Hebrew reader that 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 blood which was shed on the cross of Calvary is not common blood. It's the blood of the only begotten Son of God. And to point to that sacrifice and say, well, you know, yeah, it was a lot, but it was common, is sin. Because it was sacred. And the the writer's heart is broken by those who in in the church at that time would look at sacred things and count them as common. 
Today we have, I think, in our Western culture and in our generations, particularly in the New Testament church today, a real need to hold dear those things that are sacred. Lastly, he points to an insult to the spirit of grace. That, of course, would be, you see it's capital S there. That would be to insult the Holy Spirit. One commentator puts it this way. The Holy Spirit speaks within us, telling us what is right and wrong, seeking to check us when we are on the way to sin and to spur us on uh, when we are drifting into lethargy. To disregard these voices is to insult the spirit and to grieve the heart of God. If ever you have that nudge in, in you as a, as a professing Christian that you know the way in which you're headed, the thing in which you're contemplating, the, the words in which you're embracing, the behavior in which you are living, you can sense that God's not pleased with it and you don't respond to that. It's an insult to the spirit of grace. And I think you would agree with this morning. Those are stern words. But they're needful words in the church today. They're needful words in the body of Christ. Are we given the, the, the right to just sashay in having professed a relationship with a crucified, buried, resurrected Son of God and just say, thanks for you know, my ticket to heaven. Now I'm going to live my life the way I want. I don't think so. In fact, I know so. The scriptures do not declare that. And this writer is seeing Hebrews who had once received the truth beginning to cast away their faith. Does it, does it speak to anybody here this morning? Does it speak to anybody watching at home? Stepping on his love, calling his blood common, and insulting and grieving the Holy Spirit. Well, then he quotes, that's uh, why we who are you know, seeking to understand how to tie the Old Testament with the New Testament, it's why we, we tend to think maybe he was referring to Deuteronomy, because he quotes from Deuteronomy in verse 30, when he said, vengeance is mine, I will pay, saith the Lord, and the Lord will judge his people. But then he moves on now to a second real truth, in verse 31 uh, and following, when he says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, but, verse 32, the first word, but, and those of you who are engaged in uh, inductive Bible study, you know that's a dividing point. That word now divides what was in front of it with what comes after it. And so now it's as though the, the writer is uh, offering, 
It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Why not choose to fall into the hands of a resurrected Savior? And we come to the second real truth in this passage. The real benefit of recalling the former days. Notice verse 32. But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated. Once again a reference to they had received the truth. They had come to a knowledge of the truth. After you were illuminated when uh, it says you endured a great struggle with sufferings. Partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me. Now if you're a Bible student, you might want to take note that this is the first time the author really refers to himself in this whole book. We still don't know who wrote it, but he's definitely saying you know, this is me writing. He says, you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. Now, here's a powerful verse, part of the verse, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Secondly, the real benefit of recalling the former days the writer wants those that he is writing to to take time to remember when they first received Christ as the Messiah. When they first said yes to Jesus. To recall what was happening in their lives. That right in the midst of their, their families and their friends and their community and their workplace they, they began to have struggles and sufferings because people didn't agree with this, you know, I now am a Christian. Has that ever happened to you? Boy, I remember like it was yesterday. The day I rededicated my life to Christ, it was my late 20s, was cutting meat for Lucky's stores. I was a butcher, had been with them for a while. And, and man, we just had... Uh, I don't know if you've ever hung with uh, construction guys. Now, if you're into construction, please uh, don't take offense at what I'm saying. But sometimes construction guys can be a little rough around the edges. Sometimes the language they use is a little rough around the edges. Sometimes the behavior they behave in is a little rough around the edges. Well, the same thing is true as butchers. If you've ever cut meat in a butcher store, sometimes it's just, well, you know, it can be that way in the world, period. Let's not call them construction or butchers or whatever. Uh, the lost and the unsaved can be rough around the edges, but so can the saved. And I remember being in this meat cutting shop, man, I would walk in, I'm the Christian, you know. I was early on in my walk, and, and there were some guys there that just hated Christians. And one of them particularly, I'm pretty sure he was on something. He had a laugh. I've shared this before. I can't quite get over it, I guess, is why I keep sharing it. But um, he had this laugh that made you think he was possessed or something, you know. 
and I would talk to them about the Bible and God, and, and then they would find something I did wrong, and they would say, so you're a Christian, huh? We'll, we'll, do, we'll do you some. It's like, whoa. And maybe your, you know, intervention with the world when you first came to Christ didn't have that necessarily dramatic encounter with others, but hopefully you had some struggles. Hopefully there were those around you that didn't agree. Uh, agree. Maybe you were even made a spectacle of, and in that struggle you found that you had compassion with other Christians. And maybe as you were growing in your newfound faith, you realized that it was more blessed to give than it is to receive. And so you began to pour out of your goods for those that were in need. That's what the writer is talking about. He's saying to the Hebrews, hey, remember? Remember what it's like when you first came to Christ? And that it was joyful for you to give of your goods and your possessions and then he seals them the benefit of recall. If, if you haven't spent any time recalling your first days, spend some time because we're encouraged in it in the scripture all the time. Ephesians 2, 11 through 13. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who were once once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. Jude one seventeen. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 2 and Revelation 3. Revelation 2.5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. Revelation 3.3. 3, remember, therefore, how you have received and heard and hold fast. And repent. We are encouraged often in Scripture to remember those former days. And I love what the writer then does is he seals them and he says, It was joyful for you at that time, knowing, see the end of verse 34 there, he says, knowing that you have, present tense, a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. So we have this interesting thing going on there is that if there's the rejection by the trampling under the foot Christ and counting his blood common and insulting the spirit of grace and that's done willfully that there's no no longer a sacrifice for sins but he's speaking to them as, as, as though they have not yet there's still hope Knowing that you have a better possession. Do you know that you have that this morning? Perhaps you can go, wow, Pastor Art, that first group, there are places in there that I fit. But can you honestly just embrace that this second, the benefit of recalling the former days, knowing you have, have not lost yet your possession in heaven? Thirdly, this morning, he gives to them the real antidote for discouragement, which is simply encouragement. I bring you 
to verse 35, he says, Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Here he gives them the real antidote for their discouragement. What is it? Encouragement. Obviously, the writer knows that those to whom he is writing have become discouraged in their faith. And discouragement is a real thing, not only for those the writer of the Hebrews was writing to, but does it not go without saying that we all can be discouraged at times? You can be discouraged by many things. The attitude of those that are near to you and that you love. Discouraged by the inability to pay bills correctly. Discouraged by perhaps someone in, in the church has let you down and offended you. Discouraged because you thought you'd be further along in, in some goal or some attribute or some uh, career move. You thought you'd be further along than you are right now. And you know, all those promises about God blessing and and meeting needs and all that, and yet there's still so many great needs I have. Man, just get discouraged in this thing called the Christian faith. Hey, it's real. And maybe you didn't come through those doors discouraged this morning, but here's a promise. Discouragement lies at the door waiting. It circles around from time to time, and discouragement has an antidote. What is it? To be encouraged by the Lord. Uh, Webster's Dictionary defines encourage this way. I think we have it up there, right? To inspire with courage, spirit, or hope. To attempt to persuade or to spur on and stimulate. To be encouraged is to be inspired with courage in spirit and in hope. To be encouraged is to be persuaded to keep going. To be encouraged is to be spurred on and stimulated. And you know one of the most profound things that will encourage you in your faith is to find someone else that you can encourage. In other words, get your eyes off of yourself Look around you for someone who, who needs to be given a little bit of courage and hope. Someone who needs to be persuaded that things can change and it will be better. Someone that you can stimulate into keeping on keeping on. 
you will find an amazing thing happens when you pour out of yourself to endeavor to help someone else, that you begin to be filled with encouragement yourself. Uh, love this verse that was given to us recently, Joshua 1.9. Have I not commanded you, be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, do, nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. It's a promise. Do you know the value of placing a promise of God on your lips, in your mind, and in your heart so much so that you can repeat it often? It's called, ready, hold on your hat, scripture memorization. Okay, show of hands. How many of you are engaged in regular scripture memorization? No, don't show your hands. Um, years ago, I came across a tool called Self-Confrontation, an in-depth manual for discipleship. And one of the things this, this uh, in-depth manual for discipleship does, at the very first couple of chapters, it reminds the student the value of scripture memorization. So if you've ever thought about, uh, well, I'd like to memorize scripture, but I just... You know, man, there's so much in here, I don't know where to begin. Where do I begin? Well, where you begin is, you could almost just go like that. But I don't recommend that. I would say, go to the book of John, the Gospel of John, and open to the first chapter, and Get, go, go to the store and buy yourself a three-by-five card set. You get about 50 or 100 in, wrapped in plastic. And then you open John. You go to verse 1 of chapter 1. In the beginning, what did it say? Yeah, see, some of you already went to the store and got those cards. I don't want to quote it wrong. Although, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I mean, that's a powerful verse. You could write that on a three by five card, and then you could write it on a post it. You could put the post-it in the mirror while you're getting ready for the date. Try, try repeating scripture while you're brushing your teeth. That won't work. You could put it in your pocket, carry it with you in the car, and you just start like three, five, ten times a day putting the word of God here and here. And guess what will happen? You will begin to receive encouragement you will begin to be inspired with courage, spirit, and hope. You will be persuaded that God is in charge and on the move, and you will be stimulated by the person of the Holy Spirit. Psalm 27, 14. Here's a good one. You could get the three by five on this. Psalm 27, 14 says, Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Need strength in your heart today for what you're facing? I do. Begin to place his word written on the tablets of your heart. Isaiah, now here's where I get this about 
about you being encouraged, you and I being encouraged by encouraging someone else. Isaiah 41.6, everyone helped his neighbor and said to his brother, be of good courage. The real antidote for discouragement is encouragement. The writer to the Hebrews knew that his readers were discouraged and he wanted to encourage them. He wanted to remind them of the real benefit of recalling former days. And he wanted to warn them of the threat of willful sin and the tragedy that it brings. But lastly this morning, and we'll close with this, he gives to them the promise of Jesus' real return from heaven. Verse 37, in Hebrews 10 there, he says, For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we, and this is what gets, this stops me every time I read this verse. Because now he's not quoting a previous passage as he is in verse 37, 38, but he's saying, but we. So he's including himself, he's including those he's writing to, and each one of those who, who knew they had a better possession for themselves in heaven, he says, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. We're hanging on in there. Why? Because in a little while, he who is coming will come. A couple of verses I'll leave you with. Jesus said to his followers in the Gospel of John chapter 14, he said, don't let your heart be troubled. If you believed in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that you may be where I am. That where I am, you may be there also. His promise. I cannot find one promise that Jesus has made that he has broken. And so I'm left with he made a promise he's coming back. Either I'm going to by faith just believe it and live my life accordingly that it could be today, it could be tomorrow. And when he comes, will, how will he find you? Will he find you stomping on his love, counting his blood a common thing, and being willing, willfully insulting the spirit of grace? Will he find you remembering your first love? Remembering what it was when you first 
came to faith in Christ. And entering again into the joy of doing for others and giving to others and being poured out for others. Will he find you discouraged and yet willing to try and encourage someone else and in the process find yourself being encouraged? As we're told in 1 Thessalonians 4, 14 through 18, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. That is supposed to bring you and I comfort today. And I trust that as much as there is a warning and there is instruction, that there is a comfort also. Remember this. Willful sin, once you've come to the knowledge of the truth, is tragic. Recalling former days, although has a benefit, discouragement does have an antidote and it is to be encouraged and he is coming for sure. Shall we not live in the light of that truth? Will you pray with me? Let's pray. Lord, uh, how grateful we are this morning for your word, for the sincerity of this writer to the Hebrews and the echo of that sincerity to us this morning. That instead of falling into the hands of a living, of the living God because of outright willful rejection why not just fall into the nail-scarred gracious hands of our resurrected Savior for we know that if we fall upon you Lord that you will raise us up I pray right now and ask that if there is anyone in this room or, or watching that is discouraged in their faith. That by the Spirit of God and through the Word of God, you have even now imparted to them a breath of encouragement in how they also 
can know that the Lord is near. For we are convinced, Lord, this morning of your return. We're anxious for that return. We say, come, Lord Jesus, come. And yet, we know that you are diligently waiting because there are others that you long to save. Lord, would you find us at your coming patient and worshiping, remembering how good you are to us, and always conscious of how much we need you. We confess it today, Lord, and let us confess it always that we need you every day, every hour. Receive us, Lord, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.